episode of the Calories and Rice podcast was difficult. The podcast gods were not happy with us. The internet was not working, so we tried something new in that we basically used WeChat to send over our questions and our responses, thinking that I could actually take this information from WeChat and just plug it in the computer and turn it into a podcast. Boy, was I wrong. I basically had to use a microphone to record the WeChat voice messages via the microphone and put it on the computer. You are going to hear a weird little beep sound at the end of each one of our clips. Wish I could change it. Couldn't change it. It It's our first time using WeChat for the podcast. Not the worst system. And as a backup system, it's, it's efficient. But the audio quality isn't quite what I wanted it to be. And that's saying something because you, if you've listened to this, know I've made some terrible audio quality decisions. But also the the difficulty in, in getting rid of that, that accompanying um, closing beep was, was something I just couldn't figure out. In any case, this is the, the podcast that we came up with. Please let us know what, what you think. And this might be a system that we have to employ in, in the future when we do run into really difficult uh, technical situations. I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, the second best China Africa podcast you ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of Global China Africa Research, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I will be joined by nobody today because Dr. Nkenjika Kalu, our regular co-host, is otherwise indisposed. I am shedding a tear as I say that. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, African Development Jobs and the African Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nina Oduro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The form incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. We are halfway through, almost done, uh, discussing the Democratic Republic of Congo, and we wanted to get some Chinese perspective problem is, I don't actually know many Chinese people in the DRC. And so we did this next best thing. We had our good buddy Hong Chang Huang, who is a fantastic Chinese journalist, a recent graduate from uh, the Columbia School of Journalism, and most recently wrote some, some fantastic pieces. He is going to be joining us to talk about being a Chinese journalist in Africa and some of the things that he has heard about Congo. I, uh, I, I wish I knew more about this topic and I wish I, I, I could really help out with it, but, but I can't. But Hongshang was so nice and generous to, to offer his thoughts. And we freely admit the DRC is not our strong suit. So if you would like to continue listening to us, please go on ahead. If you, if you, feel that, you know, we, we are fools, uh, just talking about things we don't understand, that's totally fine. Um, and, and, and I apologize for, for that. That's basically it. Hong Chang, what have you been up to since we last talked? 
I know it's been, I don't know, a few weeks, but, you know, what are you working on? What kind of publication do you have on the horizon? Any interesting stories that you want to share? So after last time, I was in Johannesburg for a conference called Power Reporting. And then I was in Namibia for like 10 days. I was there in the remote corner of Namibia trying to find out what the Chinese are doing there. Is there any connection with ivory and so on? And also, I also try to observe the practice of labor to see why labor conflict is so heavy there. And last night, I just returned to the place I stayed in South Africa. Would you like to comment on any of your findings in Namibia? Labor is a pretty big deal. And also, what time did you get in yesterday? Did you get a good night's sleep? Did you get a good meal on you? Well, I returned home very late last night, and when, you know, when you come back on a long trip, you, you will find nothing to eat at your home. So basically, just rice with a lot, of, with some of those soil bean oil, something like that. And basically what I found out is that in Namibia, the conservation is actually much better than other African countries. But still, there's ivory trade, I would say, just starting. And some of the major factors is because of some Chinese are doing this buying and selling. In terms of labor issue, I think communication is still the very big problem between the Chinese and the locals. They have a lot of misunderstanding between each other, the language is a big barrier and uh, a lot of perception about many things are totally different, for example, union. So it's still very difficult. I was there witness witnessing a lot of like big fight between the Chinese company leaders and the union people. Hey, Hong Chang, you know, you, you talked about the, the, the problem, miscommunication and, and, and labor, which is something that, that I, we hear about a lot, and also something that uh, we, we might discuss later on in the podcast. To that end, you know, I've been reading a lot of, well, not, not, not a lot, of, but I've read a number of uh, articles where, where Chinese managers and middle managers are interviewed, and, and, and a lot of them do realize there's a problem with, with miscommunication and wish it could be overcome. And I think there's a lot of really thoughtful, a lot of thoughtful Chinese overseas who, who would like to solve some of these problems. And I wanted to get your take on what has to be done on the Chinese end, and I, I can't speak about, about the African end, but what has to be done on, on the Chinese end, if, if, if anything? I personally don't believe it's a hopeless case because I do hear about so many um, intelligent, thoughtful, and, and, and empathetic Chinese managers overseas that I think eventually these sorts of issues will be overcome, and I wanted to, to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think first we need to differentiate two groups. Like one is the Chinese overseas companies, those big companies. One is the Chinese small immigrants. This time in Namibia, I was more observing like the small immigrants part. And I think there are a lot of difficulties for them. The first thing is language. So as you know, a lot of those Chinese who are from maybe Fujian province, Canton province, they come to Africa. They just want to get some business done. And a lot of them, they don't have very good education background. So for these kind of people, language is the one of the most important difficulties for them. But these people, they are also trying their best to fix the problem. Like in terms of language, I saw a lot of them, like they actually gradually learn to speak a little bit of English or even Portuguese. And I have seen some very funny things. 
some Chinese uh, shop owners, they actually try to teach those local workers some very simple Chinese words. And then when they're communicating, they are using the language like mixing English and some Chinese. It's very, very And I witnessed how the Chinese small businessmen, they are trying to develop a management system to manage the assets. Well, well, that sounds that sounds really terrific, and and I think that that bodes well for for future relations. And 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 you're right, there there is um, definitely a difference. For example, the shop owner, if they hire a African person to manage a shop, usually they would put people from village A to village B, so that the person from village A doesn't manage a shop in village A, because they know when you have. A lot of like relatives, friends, your things in the shop would disappear very easily. And uh, some shop owners, they try to bring like some African people or even some white people to help them manage the African people. But I would say like the communication between the Chinese employer and the African employees is still very bad. And other than language thing, I think communication skills is, is a big problem. For example, I also see a lot of the Chinese managers, shop owners, they basically they have a lot of things to say. When a translator, they will ask a translator to tell their workers a lot, a lot of, a lot of things. But they don't really, they don't really realize a lot of the time the local people maybe, they don't understand. They don't understand the complicated meaning, meaning that the Chinese want to in a sentence, I think like a lot of the Chinese managers, they speak too much, but not listening enough. I think this is actually related to the Chinese mindset of propaganda. You know, in China, like propaganda is a neutral word, or you can even say it's a good word. So the Chinese are trying to do some propaganda about how they are, how bad the union is, but the effort they spending in listening and understanding Africans is not enough. This time in northern part of Namibia, actually because, you know, since I speak English, so some Chinese shop owners actually asked me to help them communicate with the workers because now some union is approaching like the Chinatown there and the Chinese shop owners, they are very, very worried. You make a really good point about the term propaganda. I remember back in um, in grad school, I, I was at a, um, a Chinese event. I think it was a, a Chinese New Year event, and one of the one of the people listed on the program was like the um, director of propaganda. I think that was a university club, and I I pointed out, hey, you know, for your English translation, director of propaganda is, is not really gonna fly in, in the U.S. Oh, I think not only in the U.S., it's not going to fly anywhere else but China. Alright, so could you maybe speak to what it's like as someone who does speak good English, you know, fluent English, working in these areas where a lot of Chinese people do have communication problems. I ask because uh, one, of my, one of my favorite China books is this book called um, Factory Girls by Leslie Chang. And there's this part where she just mentions offhand that um, Ms. Chang, who, who does, you know, speak English fluently, is asked, hey, why aren't you a translator for a big company and why aren't you making a lot of money instead of writing this book and being a poor journal or something to that effect? And so whenever, 
whenever someone who does speak, a Chinese person does speak good English is, is going around town and, and, and talking to people and interviewing people, um, I wonder if the same sort of question does get put up and whether, you know, when you were in Namibia, people are asking you, hey, can you tell my employee yada, 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 yada. So let me answer your Namibia question first. I think actually, like, a lot of the Chinese people there, they are very jealous about me being able to speak English. A lot of Chinese businessmen there, like, including some quite successful ones, they all said to me that, you know what, if you want to do a really big business, you cannot do it without being able to talk to the local So, I think they actually wish they can speak good English. And a lot of them, they say, at the beginning when they were in school, they think studying is not useful, so they quit school. But now they realize that at least the English is very And I can see it's not easy for the Chinese businessmen to recruit like college students who can speak English to go to their place and work for them. So I see like in the Chinatown in Namibia, I see one Chinese businessman, he hired some Chinese college students to help him manage the Chinatown. But even people like that, like the English is still actually not very good. So you will actually see the advantage of being able to speak good English in Africa. That's really interesting. I was expecting you to tell me about maybe some job offers that you've gotten or, or something that, to that effect, but still a, a really, really neat observations that, that, that you're making. Well, actually, job offer is true. Like, some Chinese businessmen would ask me, do I want to work with them to do something, blah, 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 those kinds of And the job, like, managing the Chinatown, like, it's managing the Chinese businessmen, like, it's actually a very inter interesting job to me, not only because I can speak English, but also because I'm very interested in understanding the conflicts between the Chinese and the local. Well, I think you have an excellent side career or, or potential future career lined up as being um, a, a cultural liaison between Chinese firms and their African counterparts. And, and I, I trust you, if you do ever get into it, you will write a pretty interesting book about it. Yeah, actually, that's my plan as well. Like the China South dialogue thing, I plan to in future use that as a base to set up like a media branch and also a consulting branch. And writing a book like the Dragon's Gift is what I plan to do, I think, like in three years or four years or five years. Very ambitious. And what about Congo? So why you would want to talk about Congo? Like, what make you about like Congo? As for Congo, it just kind of came up where mostly after Jacob Kushner's book came out and I realized, hey, you know, maybe I can try sort of a country-focused theme and then it just kind of floating a trial. Yeah, I think Congo is a very good case to discuss. And I think long time ago, I actually already read the Global Witness Report, China and Congo Friends in Need. And I know China is the number one investor in Congo now. Like, and the huge amount of loan they give and the huge amount of investment, especially in extractive industry, I think is very concerning. Well, yeah, I think that, that, that provides an, an excellent segue. And what I want to try and talk about, and, and, uh, and I say this, that I, I don't think 
I, I definitely um, know very little about, about Congo, and I don't think you have the, the strongest Congo background. So what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and talk about our own um, research experiences in terms of China and the DRC, and, and sort of I'm hoping you can locate what you've seen in other African countries with the Chinese and see if, if the stories coming out of Congo kind of match what you've personally experienced. Congo's are a little, a little interesting because the, the, the dominance of the, the resource extractive industries, although, I mean, to, to, be, to be fair, all foreigners are in Congo for resource extractive industries. And Jacob Kushner made a really fantastic uh, point in, in his article talking about how, uh, I forgot the exact name, but it, it basically frames Chinese corruption or Chinese exploitation in the Congo is not unique, but something that a long line of, of other foreign powers, um, uh, the, especially Belgium and, and, and the U.S., have, have followed themselves. So it's, it's not necessarily particularly galling for the Chinese to do it. After all, it's something that Americans and, 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 and Belgians and, and other countries or, or other firms from other countries are, are, are doing. I actually don't know how Chinese firms are operating in Congo. The only thing I have heard of is like the Global Witness Report. So basically, I think the people in Global Witness, they try to investigate and they found the Chinese companies there. They are very close. They don't talk to people. They don't disclose many things. A lot of people are just done like, by them and the government. I still remember the sentence in their report. They said they tried to approach a lot of Chinese actors and they give a really long list. And they, almost all the companies, they have no response at So from those kind of information, I believe it's the Chinese firms in Congo. They are operating very closely with the government and they try to lock themselves into those compounds. Well, also because of the safety reason. Is that sort of normal? Is, is it normal for, for Chinese workers or Chinese firms to, to not necessarily talk to, to foreigners, especially foreigners who, who may not be ready to write the most flattering things about the Chinese presence? I mean, it seems that you have really, um, really great access to a lot of Chinese actors in, in, in these different countries that you visit. But I wonder if foreigners have, have the same have the same level of, of, of access. Uh, Jacob Kushner, when he went to the Congo, he, he, it seemed he, he got some, some really fantastic views. So it's, I don't think the Chinese are particularly cold or, or, or xenophobic or anything to that effect. Yeah, I agree with this opinion. Actually, it's very similar to something I got when I was in South America. Like, a lot of people, they told me, Chinese companies, they are no better than, like, the Western companies, nor worse than the Western companies. I would say, like, in nature, no matter Chinese mining company or American mining company, what they do and what they want are very similar. And if there's something different, then that's maybe well, the communication gap between the Chinese public and the world, and also like the behavior, the mindset of those Chinese managers, they may be different. So about this Chinese not talking to foreigners, and I think there are a lot of reasons. The first thing is maybe still the language. So a lot of those Chinese employees and workers, they may found themselves not very comfortable using English at all. And also like, 
they are very suspicious of foreigners, actually, especially like this kind of NGO media. I generally, I generally agree. There was um, an, an article in, in a New Yorker about, um, I believe, an Israeli mining magnate who operated uh, quite heavily in, in, in the Congo and, and, and talking about him and, and his business dealings and basically also writing a not very flattering um, portrayal of a, of a foreign mining interest in, in the Congo. But a, a story like that I think could apply to almost any foreign firm operating in the Congo. It's related to the strong perception that they are like anti-China people always trying to disrupt like the good things we are doing. Well, I think as a foreigner, it's still possible that you can talk to some Chinese people. But I realize there are some kind of like source, like some kind of mindset that the Chinese will not easily reveal to foreigners, or it's not very easy for foreign people to actually understand. In fact, I think this comparison between Chinese companies and other foreign companies is actually very, very interesting because a lot of Chinese they are actually very not happy about like China being like the target of the international media because they say, well, Chinese are here for ivory, but the Westerners they are the ones who started this ivory trade, and well, China is now here in Africa do a lot of business, but a, a lot of other companies they are doing the same business and like we have labor issues. But the Indian companies, the Indian supermarket, they also have the labor issues. So why you only target us? And then the conclusion this Chinese got is that, oh, it's not because we do something wrong. It's because there are some anti-China people who try to attack us. That's why they pick us instead of like the Westerners to like to criticize. Have you heard anything different about working in the Congo? What I mean is. If if you're Chinese and, and you know you're, you're you're trying to make it in in Africa and there's different countries you go to, is is Congo one of those countries that that you're going to end up? You've you've been in, in a bunch of Southern Africa, and are there any places that maybe Chinese business people, Chinese companies, SOEs say that's a great country to go to or that's not a great country to go to, and whether Congo is one of either of those sets of countries. Well, Congo, actually, I really don't have too much direct contact with the people related. If this is a country that I'm going to visit, I think, in future, but right now, to be honest, I don't know too much about Chinese firms there. That's quite all right. I, I think it's a good thing when, when we admit there's areas of knowledge that we're not particularly strong in, and I don't know much about the Congo, so that's why I'm getting so many people on the podcast. Oh, in that sense, I think China, Congo is one of the most, one of the countries that the Chinese would be least likely to be willing to go. And why is the, the Democratic Republic of, of the Congo a place that w a lot of Chinese would be less likely to go? Because if, you know, in, in terms of what I consider to be easy money, problematic as that is, mining is... That's it. Mining is, is, I think, a very a way to make money quite quickly, and and without the sort of years and years and years of effort that it requires to open up a small store. Because essentially, like Chinese, like we prefer to be in those developing countries, 
like United States, Europe. So when we come to Africa, like they are actually using the same standard. So the favorite city of Chinese in Africa so far were hers, Cape Town in South Africa. So I could not imagine any Chinese individual would like to go to Congo. And another thing is, I asked a lot of the people, like, how do you feel when you know you are going to be sent to Africa? And how do you feel when you arrive in Namibia or like Mozambique? And a lot of Chinese people, they actually tell me, well, they don't care. They just follow orders, come here for work, money, and then later waiting to go home. Yeah, mining is a profitable business, but I don't think it makes too much difference for the employee. And it's mining in Congo is driven by those like private business. I can think like the private, the businessman would like to go to Congo because there are a lot of money to be made. But what I believe is Chinese investment in Congo is mainly driven by those state companies. And the Chinese workers, employees there are there because they are sent there. Oh, that's, a, that's a very good point, differentiating between private Chinese uh, entrepreneurs who, who want to go to Africa to, to create something themselves versus Chinese employees of SOEs who are, who are sent and, and are basically following orders. Well, I, I think we're basically uh, about, to, about to finish. Would you mind maybe recommending something for our audience? Well, since we are talking about Congo, like every time people mention about Congo, I always recommend to read the report of Global Witness, like Congo and China friends in me. But I know this was already an old report. Oh, and two weeks ago in Power Reporting, I watched a movie like the, I think it's called Blood Mobile or something. There's some Finnish guy, I think. He went to Congo and tried to find out like where the minerals are from, like the, the minerals that you use in cell phone. And then he went to question Nokia, the company. I think that's actually a really good movie. And it really tells us that actually we are involved. Maybe we think we are in the United States, like we are in China, but the moment you are using a cell phone, you are already linked to the conflict in Congo. And I think the movie also gives us a very good reflection about like the idea of like this modern society, like the technology. We always think like technology is good, development is good, like modern is good. But maybe we didn't realize the price, the cost of those developments. Actually you bring up a really interesting point about how people interact with with kind of sourcing of their of their products and this kind of relates to ivory and it, in the u.s where we're, uh, I, i'm, I'm going to hesitate but somewhat familiar with the idea of a blood diamond and blood diamonds are a very, a very complicated topic and, and it's and the term itself i, I have issues with, but basically we're just taught to feel bad about buying diamonds, not to the point that we shouldn't buy them for engagement rings, but, but worry about how they're sourced and, and how to, and just try to make sure that we feel guiltless in buying them and, and, and there's a certification process involved. But the issue is that a lot of our stuff that we have in the U.S. does have some component of human misery attached to it. I I realize that that's um, uh, 
a, a term that, that people might feel uncomfortable with, but but every every product that we have has some attachment to it that that we might not feel comfortable with how it was initially made. And so bringing up a movie like Blood Mobile or, or whatever it's called, I'm going to find out and, and link to it, also, you know, has people, people understand that they are complicit in these sorts of systems. It doesn't necessarily make them bad people. I mean, I, it could be argued that I know all the bad things that go into all the products that I use, and I don't care as much about it. So that probably makes me a worse person. But, but still a, a really interesting point and in how focusing on sort of hot button issues like, like ivory and, and Chinese demand for ivory might make people miss. But there's a lot of things that are, that are quite everyday that we use, that we eat, that we wear, that had we known how they initially came from and, 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 and the process and, and getting it from point A to point B would, would make us actually quite uncomfortable. As for my own recommendation, I'm going to recommend basically a news story and the fallout or the alleged fallout of the news story. So basically, it, it, it was revealed some time ago that, that Bloomberg was um, spiking a news story that, that might have hurt uh, about China that might have hurt its chances for, for doing business in China. And by spiking, I mean the, the editor was, was going to make sure that the story didn't, didn't come out because there were going to be repercussions. And then a few weeks later, one of the, in my opinion, one of the, the, the real elite investigative journalists who work in China, Mike Forsyth, or Forsyth, and I'm sorry I can't pronounce his name, might have been one of the, the leakers who, who told um, who, who told people that the story was, was buried. I mean, you know, that, that story being buried should not have come out, but it, but it did. And so this, this really great journalist might have been one of the people who do it, and, and he was um, put on um, suspension without pay. And so I'd like to link to, to, to the story of, of the burying and the story of, of the follow-up to this, this journalist. Now, I, I'm not going to get on, on the case for, for doing journalism in, in China, because doing journalism in China is, is tough, and I, I salute a lot of Chinese journalists who, who, who put their, their lives on, on the line and, and the well-being of, of themselves and people love on the line to, to, to try and make China better. But I do note that um, as someone who studies China and Africa, when a lot of people complain about China, they don't necessarily complain about um, the African component. These sorts of stories show that, that American media outlets are, aren't, aren't up to the task of putting these sorts of stories out there for, for the world to see. And yeah, China can be rough to do business, but you know that going in. But for Bloomberg to, to put away stories for the sake of practicality or, or pleasing the Chinese government, that, that's not, not a good look for, for them. All right, and with that, I, I think we're, we're good to go. I'm probably going to loop how people find you from the last podcast, unless you would like to talk about how people can find you, your uh, website and, and other ways to find you right now. But besides that, we, we, can, we can be done, and I'll, um, and, I'll, and I'll try to figure out a way to turn this into a podcast. Well, people can always find me on www.chinagoingout.org. Ten days ago, you can find me on Weibo, Weibo as well, but now you can't because my account was permanently like banned. 
not because of Chinese investment thing, but because of some others. So yeah, if you want to find me, just find me on the website, the China South Dialogue website. Yeah, I look forward to see how you put the things together to make it is a podcast, like look, make it look like a natural conversation. But I think this is really interesting, trying to use WeChat to do this. As for myself, you can find me on cowrysrise.blogspot.com. And you can also find me on my Twitter handle. It is at Winslow underscore R. And both the site and my Twitter feed generally deal with China-Africa stuff. This podcast can be found on Stitcher. We just got accepted on iTunes. So please go on both sites and review us, I guess. Like us. Not totally sure how it works, but make us more popular, please. Well, that's about it for today's episode. Huangshang, thank you so much for being on today's show. We would really like to thank African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily, as well as Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for providing us with this amazing theme song. And we would like to thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.